0: Well, good morning. good morning. As Pastor Tyler said, my name is Noah Cook, and uh, I have the privilege of serving as the pastoral assistant here at CCF. Uh, what that means is I am the mysterious face behind all the emails you guys get. So, um, but anyway, it is a pleasure to be up here. Grateful for the opportunity to get to preach God's word to you this morning. Um, so, without further ado, uh, go ahead, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to 1 Timothy 4, verses 6 through 10. That's 1 Timothy 4, verses 6 through 10. When you're there, go ahead and look up at me so I know we've got the text in front of us. And I'll read it and pray. 1 Timothy 4. 6-10. through ten. Hear the word of God. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end, we toil and strive because we have our hopes set on the living God, who is the savior of all people, especially of those who believe. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this beautiful morning on the eve of a new year. Thank you for the gift of this church and that we get to gather freely to worship you. We praise you for the gift of your word, for how it instructs us in righteousness and how it's truly an endless treasure trove of wisdom. Lord, I come before you knowing that apart from your spirit, I can do nothing, let alone a task as great and mighty as preaching your word. I ask that you would fill me with your spirit to preach this word faithfully and that your spirit would apply this word to the hearts of the congregation this morning. May you be pleased to use this time to grow us all to look more like you and that you would get all the glory that you deserve. We thank you for all that you've done for us. And it's in his name, it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Where were you when you first heard about the leaked Supreme Court opinion that would overturn Roe versus Wade? Where were you when you first heard about the Obergefell decision and the legalization of gay marriage? What about the confirmed killing of Osama bin Laden? Or, for those who were alive, what about the attacks on 9-11? These were big events in the history of our country that have had rippling effects throughout the rest of the world. Events that we will surely look back on in history and with the benefit of hindsight will know whether or not we responded in the right ways as christians we must learn to think and reason rightly about what's going on in the world around us we must hold biblical truth firmly and we must always let it be our primary guide as we navigate the waters of culture and the whirlwind of pagan ideologies that surround us in the face of these ideas, Christians must be so rooted in God's word that we will not fold under the pressure of the events surrounding us, no matter how tempting it may be for us to do so. This is, in a sense, exactly what Paul is commanding Timothy to do in the next, in the text we're going to be studying this morning. In the midst of the false teaching and sin of the first century church, Paul is exhorting Timothy to do To hold fast to the gospel message and to the hope he has in Christ. I've entitled my sermon this morning, The Good Servant of Christ, after the picture that Paul is painting for us in this passage in 1 Timothy. Specifically, we're going to be looking at two distinguishing characteristics that make up this good servant of Christ. First, that they are rooted in the truth. And second, that they have an eternal hope in the Savior. That's that they are rooted in the truth and that they have an eternal hope in the Savior. My hope is that we, as we stand at the precipice of another year, this church family might resolve to be faithful servants of Christ no matter what the year has in store. It's no secret that there are indeed dragons in this world that need to be slain. Therefore, now more than ever, it's essential that we intentionally work to be a people who steadfastly yield the sword of truth as we press on in this fight, motivated by the hope of Christ. But before we begin to examine our passage this morning, let's take a broad look at what's going on in the book of 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to his protege, Timothy, who had been serving as a pastor in the city of Ephesus. Paul had heard about the false teachings circulating throughout the early church and sought to instruct Timothy in how to lead his church amidst tumultuous times. It's understood that this false teaching was a form of asceticism, which at its core is the belief that a person must deprive oneself of things in order to attain true spirituality. In the epistle, Paul is seeking to remind Timothy that in the face of this toxic, false teaching, he must cling to the very gospel he has believed and has been entrusted to preach. Broadly speaking, in the first three chapters, Paul is warning Timothy of the false teachers sneaking into the church, while also instructing him in the ways the church ought to function, be ordered, and behave in the light of the gospel in the light of the truth of the gospel. Then at the beginning of chapter 4, Paul highlights some indicators of the false teaching that is being spread. Namely, marriage is being forbidden and abstinence from certain foods is being required. Paul quickly refutes such teachings as erroneous and points Timothy to the creational reality that God has in fact created all things to be good, and goes even further to point out that such things ought to be made holy by the word of God and prayer. It's in verses 6 through 9 that we'll begin our time together by looking at the first mark of a good servant of Christ, that they're rooted in the truth. Let's look at the first few verses of our passage. In verse 6, Paul presents Timothy with a conditional statement, saying, If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. These things likely refers to that which he has just laid out in verses 4 and 5, which is the reality that everything God has created is good and that nothing should be rejected in an attempt to look more spiritual than others. I think it's worth pausing here to point out that even though this teaching was circulating throughout the first century church, similar teachings have somehow still lingered in the shadows of the modern church. Despite such teachings having been rebuked throughout the entirety of the New Testament, there are still people today who insinuate that in order to achieve a higher level of spirituality, one must stiff arm the glorious gifts of our Creator. For example, Today, we have major Christian media outlets suggesting that it is somehow more spiritual to deny the desire to get married and have a family, and that true spirituality is equated with singleness. In this case, we must understand that both singleness and marriage are unique blessings in their own right, and falling into one group or the other doesn't make you some sort of super-Christian. As followers of Christ, we know that all good things are blessings from above. And because we are in Christ, we are free to enjoy them as such. But it's also important to remember that due to our fallen nature, all of our desires and dreams can easily become idols, not just those revolving around the family. John Calvin famously remarked that the human heart is a factory for idols. And in light of this, we must stand on guard against this tendency of the flesh, to turn our noses at God's gracious blessings instead of receiving them with thanksgiving. We must remind ourselves not to turn God's gifts into God's themselves. Just as Paul rejected such ideas and instead proclaimed the goodness of God's created order, we must do the same to a culture that is often tempted to reject God's blessings for the promise of higher spirituality. Here, Paul is telling Timothy that if he puts this reminder of God's graciousness in creation before his church, then he will be a good servant of Christ in his faithful ministry to them. But Paul also tacks on this extra clause being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. To be a good servant of Christ, then, Timothy must not only put this creational reality before the church, but he must also be rooted in the entirety of the teaching that Paul and the apostles have proclaimed. It's essential then for Timothy to keep an eye on all of the doctrine that he teaches, making sure that it's in alignment with the doctrine that the apostles and the early church corporately confessed. Today, Christians and modern churches would do well to consider this idea. Are we proclaiming the teaching of Paul, the apostles and, most importantly, our Savior? Are we rooted in the truth of God's Word explained in the historic confessions of faith in the teaching of the early church? Or are we tempted to teach what tickles the ears of our listeners in a vain attempt to be relevant and palatable in this secular age? Paul touches on this temptation as he continues in the first half of verse 7. He says have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. We must see here that Paul takes time to instruct Timothy to reject the false teachings that are circulating in the church. He doesn't tell them that these teachings are useful analytical tools for understanding and reaching the culture. He doesn't say that Timothy should just focus on what the teachers got right while sweeping the rest under the rug, in an attempt to keep the main thing the main thing. Paul also doesn't qualify his statement to Timothy, reminding him to make sure that he speaks in a particularly winsome fashion so as not to hurt his witness. No, Paul tells Timothy that he should have nothing to do with such teachings. Paul calls them what they are, silly myths. Brothers and sisters, As we leave these walls and seek to apply all of Christ for all of life, we must ask ourselves two questions. One, are we keeping an eye on the false teachings that the culture and sometimes even the modern church tries to sell us? Or to use Paul's Paul's language, do we know the words of the faith so well that we can sniff out teaching that reeks of heresy? And two, when we catch wind of such teachings, Are we willing to courageously step out to condemn them as the silly myths that they are? Or are we ruled by the fear of men and the approval of others, not wanting to ruffle too many feathers? As we step into this new year and an election year at that, there will inevitably be countless trends, ideas, and agendas that the world will attempt to cram down our throats in the face of such godless opposition let us resolve to be bold fearless and even dangerous men and women that are joyfully rooted in the truths of god's word ready to proclaim them to a world ready to proclaim them all to a world who needs to hear them paul continues to show us that a good servant of christ is rooted in the truth in the second half of verse 7 through verse 9 He says, rather train yourself for godliness, for while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. In this section, Paul contrasts his negative command of have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths with a positive one that Timothy should train himself for godliness. In the New American Standard Bible, the latter half of verse 7 is translated to say, discipline yourself for godliness, which I believe stresses the nature of this task much better than the word train. But regardless of your translation, the Greek word that Paul uses here is where we get the modern English words for gymnastics and gymnasium this word connotates a consistent and dedicated work that takes a great amount of effort and strength to accomplish. This work of being trained in godliness, though certainly not easy, will become second nature and ingrained in the one who's been trained over time. Paul is saying that to be rooted in the truth of God's word, it has to be ingrained in the very fabric of our being as followers of Christ. As some of you may know, I really like to run, I have to admit it. But there was a time in my life that I can't always say that. I actually started out hating it because it was very hard and difficult on my unhealthy body, but I knew I needed to push through those hardships in order to take my health more seriously. In those early days, and even now, There are plenty of times where I didn't feel like going for a run. However, I knew that it was good for me, so I just resolved to do it anyway. Over time, I eventually came to fall in love with it, and dare I say, it's almost part of who I am now. But that only came with the repeated discipline and consistency of getting out there and doing it. Now, I don't share all that to brag on myself, because I can assure you that I am nothing special athletically. If you look at me, run, you'll agree with me. However, I mentioned my running journey to illustrate that by God's grace, consistency and discipline and training compounds over time. Paul himself says that the way we train our physical bodies for health is indeed of value. In fact, I would go either, even further to assert that as Christians, we ought to be the ones who take our physical health the most seriously. We understand that we're embodied souls and we've been bought with an immeasurable, at an immeasurable cost after all. But Paul is making his argument in our passage using what they call an a fortiori argument, which is just a fancy way of saying that he's arguing from the lesser to the greater. He's saying that while physical training is surely important, how much more important is spiritual training for the means of godliness? Paul is exhorting Timothy to do the laborious work of training in godliness because he knows the immeasurable effects it will have on the way he ministers to his flock in Ephesus. Paul knows that the consistent work of training in godliness will create the servant of Christ that doesn't compromise on truth or doesn't fold when faced with temptation to sin. Paul is calling Timothy to be a servant of Christ who's rooted in the truth of God's word. And he points out that this can only become the reality through discipline and consistency in training for godliness. Family, as we begin to think about being servants of Christ that are rooted in the truth of his word, it begs the question, how consistent and dedicated are we in our own training for righteousness? Is our time in prayer and time in the Word lacking? Or are we consistently showing up day in and day out, disciplining ourselves to have God's Word written on our hearts and on our minds? Many people often wonder why they haven't necessarily grown in their ability to fight sin or even grown in their relationship with the Lord. Yet when you peel back the curtain of their lives, More often than not, you see plainly that they haven't done the heavy lifting of disciplining themselves for the end of godliness. This training can't simply be done when we want to do it or when we feel up to the task. That would hardly take any discipline at all. Rather, we must beat our bodies in submission to our will, renewed by the Spirit, for the purpose of growing in righteousness. But unfortunately, in today's church culture, the idea of discipline is often confused with the idea of legalism. Many incorrectly think that doing something, even when we don't feel like it, means that somehow that particular action isn't genuine. While we must certainly work on cultivating a heart that loves the things that God loves, we would be foolish to think that those heroes of the faith who have gone before us we're simply blessed by an extra measure of holy motivation. The reality is that when you study the lives of individuals like the Reformers and the Puritans, you typically find a relentless discipline of prayer and meditation on the Word of God. In fact, Martin Luther once said, I have so much to do that I shall spend the first three hours of my day in prayer though the vast majority of us will likely never shake a finger at the spiritual stature of the likes of Luther, Calvin, or Spurgeon, may we nonetheless strive to discipline ourselves for godliness with the same dedication as those men. And let us be encouraged by Paul's statement in verse 6, that if we do these things, we will surely be good servants of Christ. And let me just say that I am so grateful to be a part of a church like CCF, where so many of our members take seriously the charge to live faithfully where God has placed them, committed to a life of holiness and the pursuit of righteousness. I've personally gleaned so much from the saints in this church body, and I consider myself extremely blessed to get to labor alongside you for the glory of Christ. Brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you to keep it up, to keep pressing on, to keep fighting the good fight. I see so many of you faithfully raising your children, welcoming others into your homes with hospitality, and letting the gospel shine forth in the various spheres of influence that you find yourselves in. As Pastor Tyler said earlier, we're all far from perfect but I hope that you can be encouraged by the ways that the Lord is so evidently working in your lives. Let's keep working together as a church family to labor for the kingdom of Christ here in Lynchburg, being rooted in the truth of his word and depending on the spirit to carry us forth. The second mark of an unshakable servant of Christ is that they have an eternal hope in the savior. We see this in the final verse of our text this morning. In verse 10, Paul says, For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. It's at the end of this verse that Paul gives Timothy the reasoning behind his training in godliness. Paul says that the reason for this striving is because of the hope that has been set forth in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Timothy's underlying motivation for his growth must be the future hope that he has in his Savior. We see that this is what Paul was touching on at the end of verse 8. He says that, yes, training in godliness has promise for the present life, but it also holds promise for the life to come. Sure, there are tangible fruits that come from our godly living on this side of eternity, like our ability to follow the commands of Scripture and our ability to love one another the way Christ has so loved us. But as we're doing these things, we realize that we're also laying up treasures in the life to come. In Matthew 6, verses 19 19 through 20, Jesus speaks of a similar concept when he commands that we should not lay up for ourselves treasures on earth, but in heaven. Furthermore, Paul also reiterates this idea in 2 Corinthians 4, verses 16 through 18, when he says, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. In both of these passages, and in our text this morning, we see that the things done here on earth have a ripple effect that continue into the life to come. As we noted, the things we labor for that are concerned with this present life surely matter. But those things ultimately pale in comparison to the things we labor for that will have a lasting effect in eternity. Paul is reminding Timothy that not only is he to be living with an eternal mindset, but that the only sure way to grow in godliness is to cling to his Savior in the future life he has with him, that has been secured on the cross. It's only by his strength and his grace that we have any hope of making progress. So let's keep our eyes on the one who will sustain us through the end. Church, as we all continue to grow in our grace, grow in grace in our walks with Christ, do you see your necessity to cling to your savior? How often do you truly lean on Him in repentance? How often do you seek the wisdom that only He can provide? Even in writing and preparing for the sermon, my own conscience is pricked in the way that I can sometimes navigate much of my days in my own strength without even thinking about or acknowledging Christ. But Paul's reminder to Timothy is also a timely reminder to all of us to let the finished work of Christ on the cross be the motivating factor for our growth in him and to cling to him in the process. And when we realize that that isn't our primary motivation, let us confess that to our glorious Savior and let our confession drive us to cling even tighter to him. May we be a church family that rests in the eternal hope of our Savior. And may that hope be the motivating factor for our pursuit of being good servants of Christ. But perhaps you find yourself joining us for worship this morning, and you don't have a relationship with Christ at all. Maybe you thought you'd give church a try this morning, knowing good and well the things you're going to get into later this evening. Or, Maybe you quite simply don't think that you're in any particular need of saving. Before I say anything else, I want to acknowledge that I was once there too, and I can assure you that there are plenty of others here this morning that were as well. But what you need to hear most this morning is that quite simply you're wrong. Everyone needs a Savior. Why? Look no further than Romans 323, which reads that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Not some, not a few, all. And though I wasn't an English major, the last time I looked it up, uh, the last time I looked it up, all really means all. And apart from Christ, the eternal destination of sinners is an eternity of sin of separation from God in hell. But the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that he lived the perfect life that we could never live. He died a death on a cross that we deserved for our sins. He was buried and three days later rose again in glory so that for all who would repent of their sins and put their faith in him, they too might be raised to eternal life when he returns. Friend, if you haven't put your faith in Christ, what are you waiting for? Your next breath is never promised. So I implore you this morning to look to the cross and look to Christ as your one and only savior. Earlier this morning, we read the Apostle John's words together in our assurance of salvation. In 1 John 1 9, he says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What a wonderful truth that this is. Christ is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What a savior that we have. In this coming year, let us not forget that we need to first make sure that our own souls are ministered to by Christ. And as we seek to go forth into the world around us, seeking to be good servants of Christ, let us make sure that we're truly looking to the hope that we have in our Savior. So what do we do now? How are we going to let this picture of a good servant of Christ shape us in our everyday lives? How is it going to impact the way that husbands should love their wives? How is it going to change the way that wives submit to their husbands? To all the kids in this room, how are these truths going to impact the way that you're obedient to your parents? Unfortunately, we're not Timothy. So we don't have the luxury of bumping shoulders with the apostles or receiving face-to-face instruction when we need it. But God in his providence has given us this. He's not left us empty-handed until he returns. Rather, he's given us his inspired word to instruct us as we seek to be faithful servants of Christ. Let us be a people who allows the Word of God to permeate every square inch of our being so that that way we may joyfully carry out the work that he's called us to. That work doesn't have to be ministry and it doesn't have to be preaching, though those are certainly great things. Often, this work simply looks like the seemingly boring, mundane calling of being a good employee being a loving father, being a diligent homemaker, or being a faithful student. But by using God's word, we can begin to discipline ourselves for faithfulness and godliness now, laying the foundational work that needs to be laid so that in 10, 15, or even 20 years from now, we can be the good servant of Christ that we're called to be. It will take time, It will take effort, and it will surely take some failures in the process. But friends, we must start now. To be a good servant of Christ, we must be rooted in the truth of God's Word, and we must be consistently looking to the Savior as our ultimate hope. And in time, the one who gives growth will surely grow us as he sees fit. As I close and the band makes their way back up to the stage, I want to leave you with an old Latin saying that says, festina lente, which translates to make haste slowly. What this means is that we should make haste and get to work, but that work is the slow work done in the mundane, everyday lives that we live. We need to be faithful in the steady plodding towards our goal of righteousness, laboring to be the good servants of Christ that we're called to be. Another way to picture this is to think of that age-old story, story of the tortoise, tortoise and the hare. As we know, the tortoise ends up winning because of his deliberate and consistent movement towards his goal. Oftentimes, we get so jazzed up and energized about something that we want to be the hare, sprinting ahead out of raw strength and energy. But as we begin this new year, why don't we resolve to be more like the tortoise, faithfully trudging along step by step, pursuing godliness in our own lives. So church, in 2024, let's get to it. Let us do the seemingly boring, heavy lifting as we push back the forces of darkness in our community with the light of the gospel, being rooted in the truth of his word And looking to the everlasting hope of his return. That way, wherever it is that he would lead us, we may faithfully minister to our families and our church as good servants of Christ. By his grace, for his glory, and in Christ's name. Let's pray. Lord, thank you again for this glorious day that you have made. Thank you for the opportunity to gather as a church family to worship you freely. We praise you that you would give us your inspired word to instruct us in this world that you have created. Father, I pray that you would apply this word to our hearts this morning so that we might be able to leave this place and be faithful servants of Christ wherever it is you have placed us. Lord, I also pray for anyone under the sound of my voice that may not know you and who may not have a relationship with you through faith in Jesus Christ. I pray that you would open their hearts to see the wonderful truth of the gospel and that they may repent of their sins and place their faith in him. May we be a church body that seeks to glorify you in all that we do. It's in Christ's name that I pray all of these things. Amen.